This just in a proposed trial date for Donald Trump in Atlanta, Georgia. The lead starts right now. Right as the 2024 primary season kicks into high gear, so too could a criminal trial for Donald Trump in Fulton County, Georgia. As CNN also learns about his possible plan to turn himself in in the coming days. Plus, the siren system that did not sound. Growing questions and outrage in Hawaii after we learned that the Maui emergency siren system was tested but was not used before the wildfire torched to the historic town of Lahaina. Now, the painstaking process to identify the remains of the 106 so far confirmed killed. And an unexpected twist for a small town newspaper after an outrageous police raid raised alarms about freedom of the press in the United States. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our law and justice lead and what is gearing up to be a battle over who gets Donald Trump to appear in court and when. This afternoon, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis in Atlanta, Georgia, asked a judge to set March 4th as the start date for the trial of Trump and his 18 co-defendants for their alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. But that sets up Potential clashes with multiple other Trump trials, which are also set to begin in early 2024. I want to bring in CNN's Sarah Murray, who just returned from Fulton County, CNN's Evan Pettis, and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Sarah, walk us through this proposed schedule from Georgia. Well, it's a pretty tight timeline that she's proposing. And again, this is her proposal. This is not something the judge has set. So this is what she's asking for, essentially. You know, she's asking for an arraignment the week of September 5th of these defendants. That's Labor Day week. And then she's asking to go to trial uh, on March 4th, 2024. But Donald Trump already has a very packed legal calendar. You may have heard sure this. Does, I, think, yeah. <laughs> I think we have a couple of dates that we can pull up about what may already be on his dance card. So January 2nd, 2024 is a suggested date by the Justice Department to move ahead with this election interference case. There's also a date set January 15th, 2024, which is another defamation case from E. Jean Carroll. There's also a March 25th, 2024 date for the Manhattan DA's criminal case uh, in that whole hush money scheme to go to trial. And then the classified documents case is set to go to trial in May of 2024. And then, of course, you have the whole running for president business right. scattered. January 15th is the Iowa caucus. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's yeah. a busy dance card. Evan, what do we know uh, about how realistic this March proposal is for uh, Fannie Willis? It, it seems a little far-fetched, I mean, to be honest, because, you know, there's going to be between now and then there's so much that has to happen. Uh, you know, first of all, you know, they have to try to figure out whether they're going to go to, they're going to keep all of these people together, these uh, 19 defendants mm-hmm. together, right? And uh, there's also the question of whether they're going to try to, you know, move some of this out of, the, out, of the, out of the state court. So there's so much that a judge will have to sort of referee all of this, not to mention the fact that, you know, you have those, those federal trials, which, you know, take precedence over the state uh, cases. And, and Evan, while, while I have you, um, what do we know about the negotiations going on behind the scenes right now between Trump's team and Fulton County over his surrender? Well, they're going back and forth, and it appears, uh, sources are telling Elena Train, that uh, that they are looking at perhaps next week 
for him to do this. Uh, he has until uh, the 25th. And of course, you know, he has a date that he could be showing up for a Republican debate, which we don't know whether he's going to do or not. So there's so much uh, that he needs to do. And of course, they need to negotiate this with the security people at the Secret Service because they want to make sure that, you know, if the, the, the sheriff goes through with what they're saying they're going to do, which is to treat him like anybody else, he's going to get fingerprinted, he's going to get mugshotted. And, you know, presents perhaps some new opportunities for the former president to raise some more money. Yeah. Ellie, uh, another defendant in this case out of Georgia is former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. He's filed uh, to have his case moved from Georgia court to federal court. Why? Well, Jake, this is more than just procedural wrangling. This could be outcome determinative because... If Mark Meadows can show that the charges relate to his performance of his official duties, in this case as White House chief of staff, then a couple things happen. First, he gets moved across the street to the federal courthouse. Second of all, he's then on the doorstep of a dismissal because under the law, federal law, if a person can show that they've been criminally charged for something that they did, quote, under color of law, meaning in their capacity as a federal official, then the case gets thrown out altogether. So there's no question Mark Meadows has a reasonable argument to make here. And I look for Donald Trump to make a similar argument. I don't think he has as strong an argument. And I look for Jeffrey Clark, who worked at DOJ, to make a similar argument. All of these are going to be potentially dispositive motions. What does that mean, dispositive motion? Dispositive means they either stay or they go away. They live or they die. Um, Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump are also expected to make the same request. Uh, Do they have a strong case, do you think? Donald Trump does not have uh, as good a case as Mark Meadows because Trump will say, well, these were my uh, this is my effort to sort of regulate and make sure the election was clean as president. But I think DOJ's or excuse me, the prosecutors are going to respond. No, this was you as a private citizen, as a candidate, way overstepping your authority as president. As for Rudy Giuliani, he's got nothing. He was not a federal employee at the time. He's going to have to argue I was somehow hired by Donald Trump, but that had nothing to do with Donald Trump's official job as president. So, Sarah um, Murray, this is this arraignment is is different than what we've seen play out in Miami, in Washington, D.C., and in New York, right? Because it's not going to happen the same day as when he surrenders? Yeah, we got sort of used to this sort of one and done thing. You know, you go in, you get processed, you make your first appearance in court, you knock the whole thing out in one fell swoop. That's not what's going to happen in this case. You know, obviously they have until next Friday, these defendants, to turn themselves in. And then she's proposing this date, September 5th, for an arraignment. We'll see when that actually is. One of the questions that attorneys watching this case have is, are they going to try to arraign all of them together? Are they going to try to bring all of these 19 defendants together in a courtroom to do this arraignment at the same time. Other people have questioned whether everyone's actually even going to have to be there in person. This court has done a lot of um, appearances virtually, particularly since COVID. And so it's possible that the judge could allow for something like that uh, as well. So we kind of need to wait and see for the judge to win. There's also a stadium next door where Beyonce was a couple nights ago. Well, so. right. So maybe we could just do it in the stadium. Yeah. To yeah. Stadium. It Coordinate it with uh, Bay, yeah. if possible. Sarah Murray, Evan Paris, uh, Ellie Honig, thanks to you. Uh, how could all this be playing out inside Trump world? Well, let's bring in CNN's anchor of The Source, Caitlin Collins, as well as CNN political commentator Alyssa Farah Griffin, the former White House communications director uh, for the Trump administration. Caitlin, another proposed trial date is now filling up Trump's calendar right in the thick of the GOP primaries in March. Uh, in fact, the date Fannie Willis has proposed is the day before Super Tuesday. Um, how do you think this is going over for the former president and his team right now? 
not great, but I do think that they feel that they have confidence they are going to fight this. It is almost guaranteed that they will fight to push this date back, Jake, if this is something that a judge would agree to. Of course, that is the question of what that ultimately looks like. But they're already preparing to fight against that date that has been set uh, by that has been proposed, I should say, by Jack Smith's team in the January 6th case there. And so certainly they are going to also likewise push back against this one. But the reality that they do have is, you know, Trump is going on Truth Social and saying that none of these trials should happen before the 2024 election. I think it's pretty obvious why he thinks that, Jake. But the question and the reality that is facing his legal team is that the judges have so much leeway here. And what I am told is the one that they are most concerned that could happen while this campaign is ongoing in the, in 2024 as he is running uh, for president is the one is the federal indictment from Jack Smith when it comes to the election subversion case. They are were actually worried that the judge there, based on what she has been saying in court, her comments made last Friday when they were there talking about the scope of evidence and what Trump can see and what his attorneys can see and who else can see it, uh, that she is pushing really aggressively and that she is making comments about whether or not he could taint a jury pool, whether that could move up. So with this one, they do have confidence they'll be able to, that this is not going to actually happen in March of 2024. That one, they do have concerns that it could actually potentially happen next year in in the election season. Alyssa, Trump's team is in negotiations with Fulton County authorities over the terms of his surrender. It is possible we'll see a mugshot. Uh, No doubt if that happens, his team will use it for fundraising. But do you think Donald Trump would be ultimately deep down embarrassed by the existence of a mugshot? I think deep down, he would certainly hate to see um, a mugshot. I think something that he's never expected would exist of himself, but they're absolutely going to capitalize on it if we end up seeing one. I wouldn't be shocked if we saw a, you know, Trump mugshot NFT and whatever other grifts they can come up with. But listen, the, the, the Trump team is worried about this, this, this series of events that they may have, where it's from January to March, he could effectively be on two different trials if they can't get this date moved back. And he's benefited tremendously and remarkably from these indictments in the polls and in his fundraising. I think you're going to see that decline in the new year, though. Campaigns are going to be in full swing. You're going to come up on the Iowa caucuses. He may not be able to attend events because of trial dates. You're going to come up on New Hampshire. He may have to be, you know, down in Georgia or dealing with the Department of Justice. I think he's very cognizant that that could force him to lose a very critical election window ahead of, you know, actually determining who the nominee is. So he is worried about that. Uh, Caitlin, uh, Trump on Truth Social yesterday wrote, quote, they never went after those that rigged the election. They only went after those that fought to find the riggers, a word that I'm not particularly familiar with, riggers. Uh, Keith Boykin, a a Democratic political commentator and former White House aide to to Bill Clinton, he he took issue with that term. Take a listen. Oh, and he wants to find the riggers, his word, not mine, who stole the election from rigger, please. He, uh, Boykin went on to say Trump's choice of words uh, is not an accident after spending days making racist attacks against Fonnie Willis, the black woman leading the prosecution against him uh, in I- Atlanta. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, it's entirely unsurprising if you've been watching and listening to Donald Trump attack essentially everyone who has criticized him, certainly those who have investigated him. But I think what is different here is that he is pushing the limits of the criminal justice system in the sense of what he is saying online. His attorneys certainly recognize that. I mean, they argue publicly and in court that he has a First Amendment right, that he is running for office, that what he says should not be limited. But they also recognize the reality that these are prosecutors and judges 
that are either overseeing the case or handling the investigation in and of itself, and that this is not um, helpful to them, that this is problematic. But Trump is someone who can't necessarily, you know, be told what to do. I mean, his his post yesterday about holding the the major, or two days ago about holding the major press conference at Marla or at uh, Bedminster on Monday, talking about how he's finally going to prove election fraud three years later, is something that he did almost entirely on his own. It wasn't something that was this coordinated campaign strategy. And so, I mean, he has access to this these Truth Social's uh, accounts. He's the one who posts these posts. And so the question is, does the judge weigh in here in any of these cases um, and do they get involved and does it hurt him potentially as Judge Chutkin in Washington has warned that it would, whether or not that happens remains to be seen. Alyssa, what do you make of uh, the, the racial ac- accusation Keith Boykin uh, was making there that the, the use of the word rigor uh, is not uh, unintentional? Mr. President, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump has certainly been accused of racist language before. Right. With Trump, you don't need to look for a dog whistle. It's it's a bullhorn uh, when it comes to, to race. And I, I do think that's deliberate. We've seen the, I mean, slanderous attacks that he's he's uh, put out against uh, Fonnie Willis, you know, alleged things I won't even repeat. So he's not really hiding um, that he's going to lean into that element. And this is, in you know, taking place just outside of Atlanta. When you saw the courtroom, it was a lot of black men and women who were serving in that courtroom. The fact that he's introducing race into this prosecution surprises me. It's disgusting. It's textbook Donald Trump, but it comes as no surprise. Yeah. Caitlin Collins and Alyssa Farrah Griffin, thanks to both of you. And as Rudy Giuliani's legal cases unfold, the CNN original series digs into how he got here. It's called uh, Giuliani. What happened to America's mayor? That's a good question. It's airing this Saturday night at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Coming up next on The Lead, the horror in Hawaii, where 106 lives have been lost in wildfires, but only Only five people as of now, only five have been identified. That statistic alone gives you an idea of just how unimaginably painful the damage is. Plus, the siren system that did not sound. Could it have done more harm if it did go off? And to CNN exclusive just in the significant phone call between Secretary of State Antony Blinken and an American wrongfully detained in Russia. Stay with us. some breaking news for you now. CNN has learned exclusively that America's top diplomat, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, spoke on the phone to Paul Whelan today. Whelan is the former Marine, the American who has been wrongfully detained in Russia since 2018. He was sentenced to a 16-year Russian prison sentence for espionage charges, which he vehemently denies and the U.S. government says is not true. CNN's Kylie Atwood is live for us at the State Department. Kylie, how how rare is a phone call like this? It's incredibly rare, Jake. We are told, according to the source familiar with the call, it's the second time they've had a call. Uh, But it's significant that Paul Whelan was able to speak with the Secretary of State from a prison camp in Russia, where he has been for more than four years now. And we don't know the logistics of how this all came together. We do know that Whelan is able to make phone calls from that prison cell. He has phoned our colleague Jennifer Hansler multiple times from there. But of course, it's logistically complicated to stand up a phone call with the Secretary of State. Now, according to a source familiar with the call, the Secretary's message to Whelan was to keep the faith and that the U.S. is doing everything that they can to bring him home as quickly as possible. And when it comes to those efforts, we do know that the U.S. put a substantial offer on the table for Russia to try and secure Whelan's release. That was much earlier this year. That was more than eight months ago. And we're told by a senior administration official that that offer is still 
absolutely a live offer. But of course, after that offer was put on the table, Russia also took another American, Evan Gershkovich. And so the U.S. is working to get both of those Americans home right now. And Russia hasn't responded in a substantial way to the offer that the U.S. put on the table back earlier this year for Paul Whelan alone. So, of course, we continue to watch this. U.S. officials working feverishly around the clock to try and figure out something to get both of these Americans uh, out of Russia and back home to the U.S. So the, Rus the Russians are, are not showing any signs that they're interested in any negotiations for either Whelan or Gershkovich? As far as we know, there's no negotiations that are happening right now. There's been contact between the two sides. But one of the major complications here, according to current and former U.S. officials, is that the, they suspect that Russia wants someone who's in the Russian spying apparatus. The U.S. doesn't have any Russian spies in its custody right now. So they're scouring the globe to try and come up with offers that would enable Russia to actually engage in these negotiations. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. CNN is live on the ground in Hawaii. Let's go there now. It's typical, typically a place of paradise, but right now on parts of the island of Maui, it is currently a disaster zone. One week, of course, after those horrific wildfires. We're learning in some areas the flames are still burning. We're going to show that to you next. Back now with our national lead in the deadliest wildfire in the United States in more than a century. It has been just one week since 1,000-degree flames ripped through Maui at 60 miles an hour, leaving behind a path of destruction and devastation that evokes comparisons to ground zero in the days after 9-11. Only five of the 106 individuals confirmed killed only five have been identified. In most cases, all that is left of the dead is ash. Officials still do not know exactly how many residents of Maui are missing. And since just a third of the scorched area has been searched, only a third, the death toll is almost certain to climb, authorities say. But today, some relief for frustrated residents of Maui. The key Lahaina Bypass Road reopened to residents and to responders this will allow aid to flow into disaster-stricken areas. CNN's Bill Weir is on the island of Maui for us. And, and Bill, one week later, the fire risk is not even completely gone yet. That's true, Jake. Even around Lahaina, there's some, still some hot spots. I'm going to show you the hot spots up in the upcountry Kula fire in a moment. And we also uh, actually spent some time with family who are sort of in this limbo now after giving DNA and fearing the worst about someone they love uh, so much. So there's that part of the story as they're worried about. But then we actually found men trying to put out hot spots with bottled water up in the high country. Here's a look. With an upcountry fire only 60% contained, Maui's fire department stretched painfully thin and winds kicking up once again, some residents around Kula are using sprinklers and hope to protect their homes. Whoa, careful, careful. And I met volunteer first responders trying to knock down hot spots with bottled water. Oh man, you can feel the heat. So there's a smoldering pit over there. Oh. And all it needs is a good wind to, to get it going. By the time we got there, it was already flaming. Really? Yeah, it, was, it started off with just a little smoke and then we said, okay, let's get some water, haul it over there. And then by the time we got over there, it started, it started flaming already. So, you know, we're gonna go back and go put some more water on it. And in this sooty, smoky brush, one wrong step into smoldering ash means a burned foot. That's what happened. I went to go check that one, and the, and the soot's so deep you can't get through it. 
But they stay at it until they're spotted by a helicopter dropping water scoop from swimming pools, and they finally get the help they need. And they wonder why more skilled firefighters aren't being brought over from Oahu. My mind is blown right now. Really? I don't even know what's going on. How is this even happening like this? This whole road should be blocked up. We should be blocked up right now, and the firemen should just be all here, hands on deck. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you keep people on Oahu, but they have enough personnel. Yeah. It's been more time. I stayed up till 2 in the morning watching because I knew the gas station was going off and the propane tanks and, you know, my favorite store that I used to go get for gardening supplies, it's gone. And the people that lost their homes, I was watching that. Brenda Kiao's 83-year-old mother-in-law was in her Lahaina home on the day of the firestorm and her husband was among the first to provide a DNA sample. So now they are in grieving limbo. Has he accepted the, the idea that she's gone? Does he have to get confirmation before he can? I mean, the truth about it, we accepted it on the day that we saw that there's no house. But there, you never give up hope. So it's both. When he needs to talk, I just check on him. We check in on each other. We say, how are you doing mm -hmm. mentally, mm -hmm. spiritually, physically? emotionally and we take time after each to check and answer and I you know my husband was saying oh I'm okay okay and I told him no you're not and if people ask you are you okay you know you're not the word is I'm concerned so much concern on so many levels we actually have updated uh, numbers from the Kula fire now 75 percent contained so a little bit of good news but still smoldering up there Jake what passes for good news on the island of, of Maui. Uh, Bill, uh, CNN is learning that the warning siren alert system on Maui was tested just days before the fires broke out, but apparently they did not go off or officials saying why they didn't. We're hearing conflicting uh, stories from the governor who at one point said some were immobilized. Yesterday he said some were broken. But for most people on the island, if they hear that sound, it is a tsunami warning. And so the instinct would be to run away from the ocean uphill, which in this case would have been more hazardous. But a lot of locals say this was a time to actually reevaluate that warning system and have plans, have rallying points uh, given a siren. Right now they're flying planes over making announcements. They probably couldn't have done that in those high winds last week right now. Uh, but and there was also a, a text message alert that some people say they got and others didn't. So all part of this ongoing investigation into what happened. All right. Bill Weir on the island of Maui. Thank you so much. Coming up next, how that DNA matching process is playing out to identify those killed in this horrific disaster. Plus, we're going to ask a Hawaiian official about that siren system. Should it have been used in this situation? We're sticking with our national lead and more on the horrific Maui wildfires as additional mortuary, victim identification, and cadaver dog teams arrive on the island to the hardest hit areas. FEMA head Deanne Criswell returned from Maui and reported back to President Biden earlier today. Take a listen. This is more than just the visual impact of what we're seeing on television. More than the visual impact of the burn landscape. It's the level of devastation from this fire and the feeling of loss of, from such a culturally rich community.
Criswell will be back on Maui on Monday alongside the president and first lady. Joining us now to discuss, Claudia Rapcook. She's the spokesperson for Hawaii's Emergency Management Agency. Thanks for joining us. What is the most pressing need right now for survivors on Maui at this hour? First of all, thank you, Jake. Um, Our goal right now is to get people displaced by the fire into stable housing environments. That is by far our most critical need right now for those who are trying to process all that has happened to them over the past week. Um, At the moment, we've identified 2,000 housing units. Um, They're available for this effort. That includes vacation rentals that are going to be made available to house victims, as well as hotel rooms. So at the moment, we've got more than 100 families that have already been placed. And we are in the process of trying to find housing for these people who, who need stable, safe housing um, so that they can only then begin to process what's happened to them. FEMA Administrator Criswell said she does not expect uh, the search for uh, those who were killed by this uh, horrific event uh, to be completely over by the time President Biden arrives on the island on Monday. What is your assessment on the timeline? At the moment, there is no specific timeline. Um, We are so grateful to FEMA and for their resources. We do have more than 40 canine teams that have been arriving on island, and my understanding is there's more to come. We've got hundreds of search and rescue uh, personnel that are going through the burned areas. Um, This is going to take time. And so at the moment, uh, it's a very careful, very respectful process. We have to do this with compassion. Um, the devastation is, is beyond comprehension for most of us. And so it is something that is being done very carefully, being very respectful to all of those involved and, and to those specifically who have lost their lives in this, unfortunately. So time right now will tell. Um, but at the moment, we don't have a specific time frame in terms of how long it's going to take the recovery and research, uh, search and recovery process. It's always a a push and pull when it comes to uh, any president visiting a disaster area. They don't want to divert resources, but they also want to go and make sure everything is working as as best it can. Are are you worried at all uh, that resources might be diverted from search teams or survivors when President Biden arrives on Monday? You know, we're very conscious of the fact that there is a crisis that we are responding to, and it is a very active situation right now, and and it's very fluid. Um, At the same time, we are working with our federal partners. We're working with FEMA. We're working with the advanced teams to make sure that um, the work on the ground continues unaffected, while at the same time making that availability to the president and to his team that will be traveling with him. So we are working through that now, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that we make it happen and do so respectfully. Do you have any sense of how long the DNA victim identification process might take? You know, that's another question that's too hard to say. We do have a number of experts in the field, unfortunately, that have a lot of experience in this kind of work. So we have DNA experts. We've got anthropologists that have been coming in, people with experience from um, these types of situations from around the world. And so it is something that is definitely a priority, but there again, in terms of time frame, it's too difficult to say for sure. Uh, Hawaii has uh, one of the best alert systems in the United States. Today, CNN found out that the siren system had been tested uh, and most were working fine. This was just days before the fire, but the sirens were never activated when the disaster actually came. 
Now the attorney general there on the island is, or in Hawaii, is investigating. Do you have any inkling as to what happened? Not at this time. As you, as you said, the attorney general is conducting a comprehensive review of that critical decision-making that happened in the policies leading up to before, during, and after the wildfires. And so that process will unfold. Um, the question will be answered in time, but right now it's still a very active, dynamic situation. Claudia Rapcook, uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And as victims of this wildfire try to figure out their next steps, you can help. Head to CNN.com slash impact, CNN.com slash impact for options, vetted options that you can donate to. Uh, you can also test the word, text the word Hawaii, H-A-W-A-I-I, to this number, 707070. Coming up next, the move we did not see coming today for a small town newspaper raided by police just days ago, raising questions about the status of freedom of the press in the United States. International lead a shocking development surrounding the police raid of that small town Kansas newspaper, a case that to various experts seemed a huge overreach and violation of basic press freedoms. Today, CNN confirmed that the search warrant used to search the offices of the newspaper in the home of the publisher, that search warrant has been withdrawn. Police had raided the newspaper over claims that the paper had obtained information illegally, though the co-owner and publisher of the paper consistently have denied any wrongdoing. Normally, raiding a newspaper is supposed to be so rare one needs to get a subpoena, but that did not apparently happen in this case. CNN's Whitney Wilde has been on the story from the beginning. She joins us now. Whitney, walk us through what happened today. Why was the search warrant withdrawn? Well, the county attorney put it plainly. He said, upon further review of the information, uh, it appears that uh, he has come to the conclusion that insufficient evidence exists to establish a legally sufficient nexus between this alleged crime and the places searched and the items seized. As a result, he, uh, his name's Joel Enzi, has submitted a proposed order asking the court to release the evidence seized. He has also asked local law enforcement to return the material seized to the owners of the property. So basically, Jake, he looked at all the information and said there's not enough here to move forward with this search warrant. What is notable in his statement, Jake, is that he says he reviewed the information that supported the application for a search warrant on Monday, three days after after the search warrant was executed. So certainly many more questions to ask about what information police brought to the judge to compel her to sign this search warrant and why they apparently didn't consult with their own prosecutors prior to executing that search warrant, Jay. It's just outrageous. Uh, does this mean the newspaper has been cleared of all wrongdoing? Well, when I spoke with the paper's attorney, he stopped short of saying law enforcement has said that. So he said that law enforcement has not told them they are no longer subjects of the investigation. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation put out a statement today saying this investigation is ongoing, but it will uh, continue forward independently and it will not include examining or retaining those devices. Uh, so moving forward, Jake, they're going to work with the attorney. We're still waiting to find out if they have been totally cleared uh, of any of these allegations that are going on here, Jake. And, and when this search happened last week, it sparked outrage over what seemed to be a clear violation of not only the principle of freedom of the press, uh, but a law that was passed in 1980 to make it more difficult for law enforcement to raid the newspaper's offices. 
And that's why so many news organizations, including CNN, wrote letters to the local law enforcement, basically demanding that law enforcement give up the items that were retrieved during this search uh, and say that this is totally outrageous. Uh, moving forward, Jake, uh, the the attorney representing the newspaper uh, says that he will you know, continue to work with local law enforcement. He agrees that this is outrageous. Again, as you mentioned at the top here, the proper process would have been to issue a subpoena so that the attorney could go to court and they could determine the parameters of what information, if any, the newspaper would supply to law enforcement, Jake. Yeah, Whitney Wild, thanks so much. So let's talk now with the paper's co-owner and editor, Eric Meyer. Uh, first of all, uh, Mr. Meyer, I want to start by offering my deepest condolences for the loss of your mother. Uh, the raid on your home uh, and the newspaper took place on Friday, and your mother, who was shocked and upset, she, she died on Saturday, and I am so sorry for your loss. I appreciate that, Jake. I, I think one nice thing about it is that the outpouring of public support and the support from news organizations and, and journalistic organizations afterward would almost vindicate her. I think, I think she would feel good about that. Definitely vindicate her. What do you make of the news today uh, uh, that well, the, Kansas, just, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation withdrew this search warrant? I, I just uh, just was told by one of my reporters that the the items were turned over a few moments ago to a forensic analyst, uh, our attorney hired, who will check to make sure that nothing was done to them and nothing was checked off, was inspected from them. We do not know when they will be back. They're now en route to Kansas City, which is about three hours away. So I assume it will be a while for we before we hear about that. Are you thinking it is taking any legal action? Still up in the air. Uh, the the I think it's quite possible because there there needs to be a a clear line that that this is not allowed. We we had initially we actually were the ones who told them about this document that existed before it happened, and offered to give them assistance in in establishing how the document came into the possession of us. Uh, they never returned our call. They they answered it. They uh, emailed. They and a week later they came, showed up at our office and wanted to search our premises. Uh, there's all sorts of weird things going on in this. The fact, as you noted earlier, that the the affidavit of, uh, for the search warrant wasn't read by the county attorney or submitted to the court until three days after the search was conducted. And the normal procedure is it goes through the county attorney before it gets to the judge. Uh, the fact that there was the, the document that supposedly was stolen by us that actually was supplied by a source was sitting on my desk six feet from my computer uh, and they didn't take it in the seat in the in the in the uh, raid. They just left it sitting there. Um, there's a lot of very strange things. They searched a reporter's computer uh, who had been sick all that week and hadn't even been involved in it. They also took her cell phone. She wasn't even in the office at that time. So. A lot of strange things that that hint of possible intimidation and attempted bullying, and it, it, it might be appropriate to let other news organizations, small ones particularly like ours, a, a big organization like yours probably has attorneys on retainer and, and the sense that you have a voice, but a smaller news organization might be very easily intimidated by this. and. The bigger the statement we can make out of this, the more they're going to likely stick up for their rights. So just so people understand, would you think it's, do you think it's fair to say that your newspaper, which I understand has a circulation or did at least before this happened of about 4,000, 
Would you say that you're an aggressive newspaper and you try to hold uh, people in power accountable and you probably are a pain in the ass uh, to a lot of the people who run Marion County? I, I think pain in the ass is a kind word that some people would use for us. Uh, yes, we, we believe, I believe, I retired as a journalism professor and really wanted to establish that good, solid journalism is still important and that we will go after anything surprising, good or bad. We also do entertaining features. We also do other things of that nature, but we will report what needs to be reported. Not with a particular goal in mind, but get the information to the public, let the public make up their mind. That's the way a community stays strong. And we are, we've got, we're a little weekly in a small town. We have a bigger news staff than any of the dailies in much larger towns surrounding us. Yeah. And even uh, while you were dealing with all this, you still managed to publish a new edition today. The headline seized, but not silenced. Um, Do you think, do you think, (laughs) yeah, we're showing it right now. Do you think... This was retribution just because you are a pain in the ass to the people in power? I mean, I I still don't understand exactly. This was such a a shoddy search, and now they've walked back the search warrant. They didn't even look at it. I mean, are these just people that are powerful in a small town thinking they can get away with whatever they want and taking it out on the one group of people that say not so fast? Uh, It involved all the police officers in half the county. There was no police protection anywhere in the county for several hours while this raid went on. Uh, I mean, we're not like the Medellin drug cartel here. Uh, this is also, if even if they could prove the worst case scenario, it was identity theft. Well, we didn't steal anything. We didn't use it. In fact, the document that was given to us, we decided not to use. Right. So there was no dissemination of it. Uh, yeah, there was... Our chief had been under investigation by another of our reporters a few weeks earlier, Uh, the mayor and the vice mayor. And I think it's important to point out that we weren't the only people searched and seized. The vice mayor was also part of that simultaneous raid. Uh, She and the mayor have a relationship uh, uh, that I would say is somewhat reminiscent of Army McCarthy hearings. Uh, The mayor has been very, very contentious in his criticism of her. Uh, This goes back through months and months. I honestly think it's just the sense of I'm in charge. Don't you dare think that you have any voice in anything. You bow and kowtow to us when I say that you can't publish this kind of information in the future. Doesn't have anything to do with this particular story. Yeah. You have to pay attention to us. Eric Meyer, thank you so much. Thank you for what you do. I'm going to subscribe to the Marion County Record during the commercial break. We really appreciate it. We're going to stay on top of the story. Please stay in touch. We appreciate that, too, and we've had 2,000 others who've done that in the past five days. 2001 in just a little bit. Thanks so much, Eric. (laughs) Busy is an understatement for the 2024 calendar. Coming up, the proposed date for Donald Trump's trial in Fulton County, Georgia, and how that could impact other cases and play into the 2024 primary voting season. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a CNN exclusive. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke on the phone with Paul Whelan, one of two Americans currently being wrongfully detained in Russia. Could this be a sign the negotiations for his release are finally moving forward? Paul Whelan's brother, David, will join us live ahead. Plus, CNN has learned officials actually tested Hawaii's warning system just days before those deadly fires last week. The question is, why weren't the sirens turned on before and during the fire, we're going to talk to one man whose Lahaina roots go back 200 years 
Now his family's home is completely gone. Leading this hour, Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants could be arraigned in Georgia the week of September 5th. That's the date that the Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Willis, just proposed. She also wants to go to trial on Monday, March 4th, which happens to be the day before the first 2024 Super Tuesday primaries for the Republican presidential contest. This is also before the proposed trial dates for two other of his criminal trials. Let's get straight to CNN Senior Legal Affairs Correspondent Paul Reed for us. Paul, walk us through the scheduling proposal from the Fulton County DA. Well, the key word is proposal, right? This is her request. She said in her press conference just a few days ago that she wants to try all 19 defendants together, and she wanted to do that in six months. But, Jake, it's a pretty aggressive timeline. Six months uh, to put on a RICO case. These are notoriously complicated, tend to be drawn out. And then you have 19 defendants, at least three of whom are expected to challenge this, try to get it removed to federal court. So it's unlikely that this is going to be granted. But she's also competing for real estate on a very crowded calendar. I mean, let's start with January of next year. Uh, There's a request by the special counsel to do the January 6th trial, the first week of January. Then you have the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, a civil trial, January 15th. Same day as the Iowa caucus. Exactly. <laughs> the Manhattan hush money case, the first criminal prosecution scheduled for former President Trump at the end of March. And then tentatively scheduled the Mar-a-Lago documents case in May. And as you noted, I just laid out the legal events to say nothing of the many events and deadlines and primaries for him as candidate Trump. Yeah, something like 57 Primaries and caucuses. Uh, Paula, uh, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, has filed to have his case moved to federal court. What, what's the argument there? So we expected that the former president and several of his closest allies would try to get this state case removed to federal court. Now, he argues if he can get this removed to federal court, he will move to dismiss it. His attorneys argue that he is protected because they argue that everything he did that's alleged in this indictment was done in his capacity as the White House chief of staff. And there is a statute that is meant to protect federal officials from state prosecution. Jake, I don't know that he's going to be successful on the arguments of getting it dismissed, but if he or the former president or Rudy Giuliani, who says he's going to try this too, if they're successful in getting this removed to federal court, there is at least one big advantage for them, and that is the jury pool. Fulton County is a heavily Democratic county, so the jury pool is going to be skewed Democratic. If you can get it removed to the federal jurisdiction, you have a wider, more diverse jury pool, but they could still face D.A. Fonnie Willis. She could be waved in as a U.S. attorney and prosecute this case, and I think that one of the biggest issues here, too, for the American people is that if this is removed to federal court, you won't have cameras documenting every moment of this case. Yeah, Paula Reed, thanks so much. In addition to being indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, Rudy Giuliani is staring down hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills and sanctions. And his lawyer claimed today that Giuliani will not be getting any help paying those bills, not even from his client, Giuliani's client, Donald Trump. CNN's Caitlin Palance is here with more. Caitlin, how did the former New York City mayor find himself in such a financial hole? Well, it was working for Donald Trump after the 2020 election. Whenever you look at all of the legal issues that Rudy Giuliani is facing, and he is facing some personal lawsuits, some difficulties with his business, unpaid phone bills from 2020, the vast majority of what he has to face and the costliest things that he has to do are respond to defamation lawsuits from his work after the 2020 election for Donald Trump. There are the criminal matters, which 
are very likely to be uh, quite a laborious and quite a costly thing to deal with as well. Having a lawyer represent him talking to the special counsel's office as he's doing. He's not been charged there in federal court related to January 6th, but now he has been charged in Fulton County and will now is vowing that he's anxious to go to trial to fight it. But the lawsuits related to the 2020 election are progressing. And every time they take another step forward, it costs money to litigate. It costs money for him to get access to his records, to turn them over under subpoenas. And so places like Smartmatic, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the election workers in Georgia, all who are suing him are going to the court and asking them to sanction Rudy Giuliani for just not showing up, essentially, in the course of these lawsuits. That doesn't even factor into what happens if he were to lose them. And he's already conceding he did make false statements. So we know Trump's super PAC has spent millions of dollars on legal phase, not only for the former president, but for many of his associates. Uh, His fans say this is him being generous. Uh, Critics say this is a way that the Trump team keeps everybody in line, makes sure nobody flips. Um, Either way, why wouldn't Rudy Giuliani have his legal fees paid by the Trump super PAC? Well, there was a bit of a hiccup back in 2020 where Rudy Giuliani was saying was sending them very large bills for his day rate. And there was some question of whether Trump wanted to pay that. But as of right now, all we know is that Rudy Giuliani has a lawyer who's been representing him or a team of lawyers on these various things related to what he did for Trump after the 2020 election. And they have not been paid by Donald Trump or by Trump's PAC, the Save America PAC. However, one of the things that has happened is that Giuliani incurred a debt of $320,000 just to keep his electronic records from 2020 archived and available for lawsuits. That was something where the PAC came in, paid that bill, also gave him an extra $20,000, just a boost to get him through a little bit more there. But he was in court today. His lawyers were in court today in this Smartmatic defamation case, and they said that they are not expecting any more financial help. And according to the court filings I've looked at, it took them months just to get that $340,000 from the Trump campaign. Months of negotiation. All right, Caitlin Palance, thanks so much. As Rudy Giuliani's legal case unfolds, a CNN original series digs into how he got there. It's called Giuliani. What happened to America's mayor? That's a good question. It's airing this Saturday night at 8 Eastern, only here on CNN. I want to bring in Republican presidential candidate uh, Will Hurd. Will, let me, let me start, or, I'm sorry, Congressman Hurd, let me start with you by just asking the question that's in the title of that. Rudy Giuliani, what happened to America's mayor? What do you think happened to him? He got tied up with Donald Trump, right? Like, unfortunately, it seems that a lot of people in Donald Trump's orbit um, that have ended up falling on hard times are ending up in in prison. Um, It's it's really unfortunate as someone, you know, I was in the CIA when 9-11 happened. You know, you know the importance of of New York City and, and the former mayor's role there. Um, it's pretty it's pretty disappointing. And I'll be I'll be tuning in and watching to see what happened. Uh, thank you. Uh, you have said uh, that Trump's fourth indictment, the one from this week in Fulton County, Georgia, is just the latest example of how Donald Trump's baggage uh, will hand Joe Biden reelection if Trump becomes the Republican nominee. Uh, looking at the latest polls showing that Trump and Biden are essentially tied, though, Um, A new Quinnipiac poll out today shows Biden at 47 percent, Trump at 46 percent. Why do you think this is going to hurt Trump? It seems to be only helping him solidify the Republican base. And I don't see any obvious impact on the head to head polls. 
Look, we should have learned that polling since 2016 that polling is a snapshot in time. Um, it is not an indication of who's actually to go out to vote. These were the same polls that like two weeks ago when that um, the the legal the ballot issue on in, in Ohio uh, came to a vote last week. It was basically a a vote about abortion. Uh, the week before that vote, everybody thought it was close that it was tight, and it ended up going down by 18 points. Uh, we saw this in 2022. The weekend before the election in 2022, the same polls, the same prognosticators were, gonna, were saying that Kevin McCarthy was going to have potentially north of 30 people as a, as a buffer, as a in, in lead, and they ended up only having five. Uh, there's no question that right now uh, Donald Trump is in the poll position of the election. But as these issues keep coming out, people are getting sick and tired with this baggage. They want people talking about uh, articulating a vision of the future. Um, how many conversations have you gotten in to some of these terrible policies of Joe Biden, the $6 billion given to the Iranians, and we're not even getting the Americans back on our soil? Uh, the fact that, that Republicans haven't been able to talk about the problems with the Biden administration is because we're consumed uh, by, by, by Donald Trump. Uh, we need the GOP. If we nominate Donald Trump uh, for president, it is going to go to Joe Biden. Period. Full stop. And we need to elect someone who's not afraid of Donald Trump, but's articulating a vision for the future. And if your viewers believe in that, then go to hurtforamerica.com and help me get on that debate stage by giving at least one dollar. So um, we did cover, just for the record, we did cover the uh, six billion dollars in unfrozen uh, assets uh, in exchange for those uh, five. Um, Iranian-Americans uh, being remanded to house arrest in Iran, just, ju just for the record, uh, but I hear you. Uh, let's talk about a couple issues, because I want to talk about the war in Ukraine. The other day, the mm. U.S. announced uh, a new $200 million aid package. Polls suggest now that, that most Americans are opposed uh, to more funding by the United States to support uh, Ukraine. There are wide gaps by political party on this. Uh, you come from an intelligence background, as you noted. Do you think the U.S. is doing too much, not enough, just right? What do you think? I don't think we're doing, I, I don't think we're doing too much. I think we need to do stuff faster. And, and, and the reason that we're having that disconnect in polls is we're not having people articulate uh, why Ukraine continues to matter. Uh, the broader perspective is you know, we, the United States, created an international order after World War II that benefits us. If we don't defend that international order, then that hurts us. Uh, sp specifically on the, on the dollar spent, it's been about 5% of the entire DOD budget that has been spent on the war in Ukraine. And guess what? We've gotten the dismantling of the Russian military without having to send our boys and girls or spouses uh, to the conflict. I think that's a really good deal. The problem with this administration is they're not articulating what a, a vision of victory is. And to me, victory means we're pushing the Russians out of all of Ukraine to include Crimea and the Donbass. We should be making sure they have all the equipment they need in order to establish a no-fly zone and even hit and attack uh, positions inside inside Russia. Uh, we need to stop trying to make the Ukrainians fight this war with the hand tied behind their back. And if we do that, this is not going to be a forever war. It's something that could wrap up sooner rather than later. Uh, let's turn to education policy. Today, uh, the former vice president, Mike Pence, who's one of your competitors, said he would eliminate the Department of Education on day one of his presidency, and he would return those funds to the states with the mandate that they must expand school choice. Uh, what do you make of that plan? Do you support it? 
Uh, well, look, I, I don't think getting the, getting rid of the Department of Education is is the right way to go. I, I think that the amount of federal dollars that that go to that go to school is important. I think uh, school choices. I supportive of school choice. I, I'm also supportive of making sure public schools have the same rules and regulations uh, that magnet schools do. I think we should be working with the Department of Education to figure out how to get a AI tutor to every student uh, that needs it. The tools exist in order to in order to uh, do that right now. I was lucky to have parents and an older brother and sister that helped me with my homework. Imagine now we have something that's in everybody's pocket uh, that helps that teaches them how to fish rather than just giving them a fish. And that's something I think would be a valuable use of, of Department of Education because ultimately in the United States of America, we have income inequality because we have education inequality mm -hmm. and we can fix that. Uh, one week from today is uh, the first Republican primary debate. You still need to hit the polling threshold and the donor threshold to get on that stage. If you don't make the debate stage, is that a campaign ender for you, do you think? Well, first off, I'm pretty confident we're going to be able to hit those requirements before the deadline on, on August 21st. I'm hoping uh, folks help us out with that. Uh, we're still working towards those goals, uh, but I feel pretty confident we're going to be able to pull that off. And let's, let, once we do that, then we won't have to worry about the second part of the question. All right, Republican presidential candidate Will Hurd, good to see you, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. A gruesome search. One team saying the fires in Hawaii were so bad. It looks like everything in one community has been cremated. We're live from Lahaina next. Plus, conservative appeals court ruling on the abortion medication, Mifepristone, why this could signal access to the drug that got FDA approval more than 20 years ago might soon be changing. Internationally, you know, a week after those deadly wildfires ripped through the island of Maui in Hawaii and devastated portions of Lahaina, on Western Maui, the death toll is climbing. And so far, only five of the 106 people so far pronounced dead have been identified because, frankly, the remains are unrecognizable. Rescue workers and cadaver dogs are on the scene. They're combing through the ashes of the homes and the businesses that were incinerated by the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. Gloria Pasmino is in Lahaina right now for us, where crews are searching through the rubble. The scope of the devastation here stands in stark contrast to Maui's stunning beauty. It looked like it started up there and you know, ended down there. Frank Taylor with FEMA's search and rescue team found Lahaina reduced to ashes. Now a graveyard for everything and everyone caught in the wildfire's path. There's nothing left. Cremation, basically. This is the absolute worst disaster I've ever seen. More than 100 dead. Now, search teams face the grisly task of finding many more in the days to come. Using dogs, trained to locate cadavers in this restricted zone. They are absolutely essential to this. And they're trained just for uh, human remains. We can walk through and do visual searches. But you send a dog in there and they'll find them. I'm very confident we'll find everybody. Main roads are just starting to open here. FEMA is providing disaster relief and families, hoping to lay the victims to rest, are fighting exhaustion amid their grief. I just want to identify the body. Uh, the police have really helped, uh, but I have run into a lot of people that I understand are tired. I'm tired too. I haven't slept in six days. For some survivors, 
not knowing how the deadly fire started and how it was able to cause so much destruction so quickly adds to their suffering. A warning system that never sounded, despite being tested just days before the fires raged. The cell phones were immobilized, the power lines were down, and we had no service. But the sirens, some were broken, and we're investigating that. And some locals point to downed power lines and loss of water pressure as the flames ravaged the landscape, fueled by months-long drought, extreme winds, and flammable grasses. But one local Hawaii reporter says he finds solace in the close-knit community of Lahaina after losing at least four members of his extended family. The people of Hawaii have always been rooted in the spirit of Ohana, which is family. And I know how painstaking this is. I know the hurt. I know the just the deep void we all feel. And our thanks to Gloria Pasvino. Um, with us now is Eitan Krupnik, whose family lost their home in Lahaina. He's 14th generation. His family has lived in that town for more than 200 years. Thankfully, nobody in his family died, but 50 to 60 members of his family have been uh, displaced. Uh, Eitan, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I understand you're staying with your dad not far away from the destroyed areas. Um, tell us what you're seeing in those devastated areas. Straight um, just oblivion. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing there. Um, everything's flat. And it's, you don't see what you grew up with. You don't see the, your town anymore. Um, it's completely gone. It's, it's unexplainable. And it's, it's very tragic to just even go there and look at what has happened to our beautiful lion of town. I know a lot of residents of the island, such as yourself, uh, have a lot of questions uh, about why the emergency yeah. warning siren system didn't sound. Um, what's your message to leadership on the island right now? I would say to the leadership on our island um, to really, I mean, we can't bring the lies back. We can't take anything back. Nothing will ever make up the loss that we lost, you know, here, our town, our, 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 our neighbors, our friends, our family. They can't do anything to take that back and nothing will ever make it right. But you know what? Like you need to start listening to your community. It's, it's that simple. You know, actually listen to us you know, and collectively collaborate with us, you know, not these community leaders that are voted in or that are, you know, chosen to like, hey, you can be a cultural advisor or something. No, you need these long time line of families, you know, and friends to just collaborate with the people that would like to be in the spotlight. Because we are the people, the community of Lahaina. We make Lahaina. That's why people keep, um, keep coming back to Lahaina is because of the people, you know, and the beauty, of course, but the people is number one. And we want to stay in Lahaina. Are you worried that you're not going to get the resources or the financial help from Hawaii or the U.S. government that, that you need in order to rebuild? Yes, 100 um, percent. We're already stressed out of mourning and the loss of our beautiful town. And now we have to worry that maybe our land won't be, um, you know, livable in the state's eyes where we think that they're going to try and take that away from us or even just funding you know like who's going to help clean up all this debris are the owners of of each property have to clean that up you know by themselves and come out of their own pocket the community is already from all 
all islands are driving in boats, you know, flying in planes, driving from the other side of the island, bringing in with their own money. You know, I've yet to see or heard of anything from the state or the upper, you know, the president himself to like really come and actually assess and help out the people that are in need right now, that are being displaced, that lost all their homes. That night, uh, just over a week ago, must have just been devastating and horrific. I can't even imagine what it was like. You know, it was a nightmare. Like, the whole time we were just trying to run for safety for our lives. I don't, I know nobody thought that we would be watching our beautiful Lahaina town burn in flames. It was, it was a nightmare. It was, uh, it was, it was like watching one of those like Game of Thrones movies where it's just like fireballs just destroying this beautiful place that God created, you know? So, yeah, you never want to relive that. Eitan Krupnik, we're so glad that, that, all of your family is is alive and well, and we're going to stay yes. on this story. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Stay in touch with us, please. Thank you. Thank you. A phone call between America's top diplomat and one of the wrongfully detained Americans in Russia. Could this signal progress towards Paul Whelan's release? I'm going to talk with Paul's brother next. And we're back with our world lead in a CNN exclusive America's top diplomat, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Spoke on the phone with Paul Whelan today. Whelan, as you know, is a former U.S. Marine who has been wrongfully detained in Russia since 2018. He is serving his 16-year sentence in a remote Russian prison camp on trumped-up espionage charges, which he and the U.S. government vehemently deny. Paul Whelan's brother, David, uh, joins us now. David, uh, Paul told your parents that the conversation was, quote, long and Frank, uh, what else can you tell us about uh, what Paul said to Secretary Blinken? That's really all we know. Uh, it's difficult for Paul to have uh, phone calls. And uh, so I think he probably took uh, the opportunity to be as, as clear as he could about his concern about his situation with uh, Secretary Blinken. Do you have any idea how the call happened or why it happened today? I don't. I think that uh, Secretary Blinken has obviously sent a message, and uh, that message uh, is for Paul and for our family, that uh, the U.S. government is continuing to advocate for Paul and his release. Uh, and I think it's also a message for the Kremlin uh, that uh, that the U.S. government hasn't let up. And in fact, uh, their lead foreign policy person uh, is, is willing to call a prisoner, which is, I think, astounding. A senior U.S. official says that Russia has not responded in any substantive way to the most recent U.S. proposal uh, to try to get your brother home. Um, and now with Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich there too. Um, do you think that that is further stalling these negotiations? I don't think so. I think that the U.S. government probably has a pretty good idea of what the uh, Kremlin wants. And it's a question of whether they can make that concession. Uh, I'm not sure that they can. Uh, and uh, hopefully if they can, they will. But uh, I, I don't know that uh, Mr. Gershkovich's uh, case is, has complicated efforts. I think that the U.S. government has struggled and continues to struggle to find uh, concessions that the Kremlin wants. Right. So I've heard uh, that Russia wants Russian spies who are in prison uh, to be released in exchange uh, for your brother and Gershkovich. Uh, and the U.S. does not currently have any, so it would require the U.S. to lean on allies who have various imprisoned Russian spies. Are there any specific ones uh, in countries that you think uh, bringing public attention to it might encourage those prime ministers or chancellors or whomever to, to help the U.S. out here? 
I'm not sure. I think that the Kremlin is always looking for parity. Uh, and so it may be that uh, since they have labeled Paul a spy, that that's what they want. Uh, I think the U.S. government is in the best position to make those phone calls to uh, other uh, diplomats, other uh, foreign leaders. And if there is a concession to be had to, uh, to negotiate that uh, and hopefully bring Paul home. Your sister Elizabeth told CNN last week that negotiations are moving at a, quote, glacial pace. Uh, how are you and your family staying positive? It's been almost five years now. Or more than yeah, five you know years. It's been almost that, six uh, years. I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, just actually just over four and a half. So four and a half. Okay. Uh, uh, we're coming up to day 1,700. And uh, I, think, I think we are, are now at a point where we're resolved that uh, it could be 2034 before Paul's home. I don't think that there's any reason to think that what the U.S. government is doing right now is going to lead to Paul's immediate release or even release as soon as possible. So uh, I think we are focusing now that he may have to do his 16 years. And, and the, the better that we are able to come to grips with that, uh, the more I think we'll be able to survive it and help him to survive it. All right, David Whelan, hopefully you're wrong. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. We're going to stay on this story. Thanks so much, Jake. An exclusive CNN investigation gives a rare glimpse at the horrors of a brutal civil war raging inside Sudan by piecing together video of one of the region's worst massacres. Stay with us. In our world lead, a gruesome discovery in Sudan as the civil war between Sudan's army and the RSF, or Rapid Support Forces, led by the country's former second-in-command, rages on. Thirty mass graves containing the remains of more than 1,000 people were discovered in West Darfur, according to local officials. In a CNN exclusive, CNN's Nima Albagar and her team pieced together video from a massacre in West Darfur in June that was one of the bloodiest in the region's history. It ended with victims' bodies littering the street and eventually being buried in the mass graves. And we want to warn you, some of the images we're about to bring you in this important report are, are graphic, and the report includes distressing descriptions of this conflict. The streets of Al-Jinena in Sudan's Darfur region are eerily quiet. Filmed at great risk by survivors, the video shows racist graffiti defacing walls and corpses littering the streets. Seen here in their own propaganda, Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces, RSF, occupied Jinena in June. After a heavy shelling campaign and fighting in their war for dominance over Sudan's army, a CNN investigation has now uncovered some of the cost of the RSF's victory here in Jinena. Survivors, aid workers and body collectors described to CNN how, together with their allies, the RSF gunned down hundreds of civilians in and around Jinena on June 15th. In one of the most violent massacres to date in the recent history of this genocide-scarred Sudanese region. Using satellite images, eyewitness testimony and geolocating what few videos have made it through the telecommunications blackout, cutting that four off from the world. I lost eight members of my family that day during the escape from Al Janina to Chad. This man says he buried hundreds of victims in that four since April. But on that day, he couldn't even reach his slain relatives. The RSF's troops are drawn from Darfuri Arab tribes and, together with its leader, Mohamed Hamdan Degelo, a.k.a. Himeti, are implicated in the years-long genocide in the region against African tribal groupings. 
It's unsurprising then that the war between the RSF and Sudan's military for control of the country took an even more sinister turn here in Darfur, mirroring the RSF's previous tactics, forcing civilians to flee, many arriving in Jinena. That is until June 14th, when the West Darfur governor seen here at his arrest by the RSF was executed. The RSF, blamed for the killing, denies responsibility. As hundreds attempted to flee, they were harassed and threatened. Even children joined in. A lucky few made it to Chad. They were going into houses killing people. Snipers were everywhere. Bringing with them stories of ethnic targeting. On the road out of the city, we were stopped and searched. They took our phones. Men were separated from the women so they could kill us. We ran, but they shot some of us. Evidence shows much of the killing occurred here outside the main hospital in Jinena. Then, fleeing civilians were ambushed again in Wadi Kaja. Satellite images show the river, which is usually shallow enough for cars to cross, had water running high that day. Scores struggled in the water, some shot as they drowned. Survivors say they heard gunfire from all directions. I saw 17 kids who were shot dead, then thrown into the water. This was one of the most surreal scenes I've witnessed. Even as they fled Jinena for Adre, across the border in Chad, our evidence shows men, women and children were shot as they fled. At the MSF hospital in Chad, survivors arrived with gunshot wounds in the back, legs and buttocks, the lead doctor told CNN. All injuries consistent with being shot from the back. Over 850 people flooded the hospital in Adre between June 15th to 17th, according to MSF, more than any other period since fighting began in April. Body collectors say, according to their count, around 1,000 people were killed on the day of June 15th, buried in dozens of mass graves. Survivors say the RSF is replicating these same tactics across the region. Even as their supporters celebrate in the aftermath of mass killings and the sweep of escalating ethnically targeted attacks. An official Rapid Support Force spokesperson told us that they categorically deny the assertions in our reporting. Without commenting, though, on any of the specific incidents that we put to them. And I think it's also important to point out, Jake, that they have previously denied the findings of previous investigations before you turning and announcing that those implicated in the violations we detailed would be prosecuted. Uh, And that seems to really be a pattern with them. Jake? More incredibly important journalism from uh, Nimel Bagger. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. With the first Republican primary debate just one week away, several candidates are still struggling to make the debate stage. Who's in? Who's out? Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, we're just one week away from the very first Republican presidential debate of the season. While eight candidates have qualified to take the stage, including Trump, DeSantis and Nikki Haley, time is tick, tick, ticking for several other candidates who have yet to meet the polling or donation requirements. But Asa Hutchinson and Will Hurd, who spoke with me earlier this hour, say they're not giving up hope just yet. 
I'm pretty confident we're going to be able to hit those requirements before the deadline on, on August 21st. I'm hoping uh, folks help us out with that. I plan on being on the debate stage there in Milwaukee. I like the trend line in which we're uh, moving toward that goal. So uh, I need everybody's help to get there because you need my voice on that debate stage. And just to be clear, my panel's with me now, just to be clear, it's not an amount you need to raise. It's not like you have to raise $10 million. You have to have contributions from 40,000 people, which seems like a reasonable standard, I have to say. Um, Do these candidates, uh, Heard and Hutchinson, not to mention Larry Elder and uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, do you think that they have enough time to get to the stage? And do you think that if they don't get there, that that's fundamentally the end of their campaigns? I think if they don't get there, it's a, it's pretty mortal blow. And look, I mean, they can go the Doug Burgum route and buy, you know, uh, forty thousand donations. I mean, you know, what did he do exactly? Well, they he offered gift cards, right? you know, like gift cards for like yeah. twenty bucks for 20 every bucks one dollar donation, $1. you know, and you get That's, a little flag or something. I it's mean, a good deal. What was the twenty? Was it for like a? Uh, Coles or something? What was the twenty dollars gift? I, 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 could, I, I have not done deep enough of reporting. I don't know. I just get Christmas <laughs> yeah. shopping coming up. But yeah, like, <laughs> like there's and Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, he made it naturally, but he also launched a sort of uh, you know, like or you get Mar- a percentage of it, a Mary Kay Ponzi kind of structure <laughs> to to get donations. I mean, so it could be creative, but it's getting close. Do you think that if they don't make it to the debate, then that's it? Sadly, I do. Look, I hope that they sadly. do make it. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say, I say sadly because Jake, Asa Hutchinson, Will Hurd, Chris Christie, who I believe is going to be he on, made on yeah. the debate stage. Yeah. But these are the very few candidates who have shown courage, who have actually been able to have the backbone to tell the truth about what Donald Trump would mean, not just to the Republican Party, but to the country, if he is allowed to go into the Oval Office again. And it seems like the Republican base, especially the MAGA voters, don't want that kind of courage, don't want that kind of backbone in their candidates. Because if they did, Will Hurd, Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie would be at the top of the pack, and they're not. You hear from Republican voters all the time through your newsletter, through uh, social media, et cetera. Do you agree with her? Through being heckled in the street. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. yeah no, so it's interesting. This, there's this uh, New Yorker profile of Ron DeSantis's campaign that just broke today. And there's a great little uh, factoid in it that when they were doing polling of Republican focus groups or Republican voters, uh, 70% of Republican voters said they agreed with the statement COVID lockdowns were bad. Mm-hmm. And then if you asked, if you said Trump's COVID lockdowns were bad, 70% of the voters disagreed, right? So it is purely a, if Trump's for it, we're for it kind of dynamic. And that's a really hard thing to fight, you know, right now. And, um, you know, you, you can look at it in terms of the indictments. You can look at all of these things. If it's bad for Trump, there's just a reflexive thing among a big chunk of Republican voters to say then it's not true or not fair. Uh, Vice President Pence, who's also going to be on the debate stage, I think he made the debate stage, he weighed in for the first time today on Trump's fourth indictment. Take a listen. No one is above the law. And the president and all those implicated are entitled to the presumption of innocence that every American enjoys. I mean, trying to have it both ways, maybe. You think? A little, yeah, a, a little bit, especially because he was the one whose life was in danger on January 6th. He was the one who his former boss was calling for people to punish him if he did not come out and do the right thing by Trump, which was 
to overturn an election that he had no authority to be doing. And look, I actually do feel bad for Mike Pence because he kind of has nowhere to go. He has no lane. He has no natural base. He seems to be somebody that maybe Christian voters could get behind. But they're not. But they're not, exactly. And so I don't know where he's going to see the opportunity to be the one that's left standing, because this is what they're all, right? This is what they're all hoping. This is what they're all betting, right? The reason why you only have those three that I mentioned being the courageous ones to really stand up against Donald Trump and what he means, right? All of his indictments. Whereas the other ones seem to be following Trump's lead and they're enjoying indictmentum, right? But it's all focused on Trump. So that uh, fourth indictment is from Georgia. Uh, so is this uh, next individual, uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. In an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, was asked about whether she would run for Senate in 2026. She said, quote, I, I have not made up my mind whether I will do that or not. I have a lot of things to think about. Am I going to be a part of President Trump's cabinet if he wins? Is it possible that I'll be VP? Uh, why you're giggling? I, uh, why are you giggling? I take that very seriously. You don't. You don't at all. Uh, look, I, oh, I think it's entirely possible she could be in Trump's cabinet. I don't think Trump will pick her as a VP, though. You can't, uh, as a running mate, I should say. Uh, you can't rule it out. You can't. You can't necessarily rule it. Dream. Rule it out. Uh-huh. Either. And um, she's won elections, unlike Carrie Lake, who is also often talked about a possible VP with him. Yeah, look, I mean, this is a very stupid time to be alive. (laughs) We have to just sort of stipulate that before we continue. Right. So graded on that curve, I think that Trump thinks that he needs somebody with some gravitas. He cares a lot. He actually cares a lot about what other people think, even though he pretends that he doesn't. And uh, so. I don't know. You would think that even some of his his political advisors are not all crazy, terrible political advisors. No, not at all. Some of them you would expect would upend a jerry can of gasoline over their heads and light a match if he said, "Okay, we're going to go with Marjorie Taylor Greene. All right. Thanks, one and all. (laughs) Appreciate it. Coming up next, a conservative appeals court ruling on the abortion medication mifepristone. Why this could signal access to the drug might be changing. But first, here's CNN's Wolf Blitzer with what's next in the Situation Room. Wolf. Jake, Jake, the Hawaii governor, Josh Green, he'll be back with us here in the Situation Room and we'll discuss what's going on live. He'll share the newest information on the Maui wildfire disaster as the death toll climbs above 100. And questions about the cause of the disaster clearly intensify. I'll ask him about all of that much more and I'll, we'll certainly discuss President Biden's visit to Hawaii next week. Uh, all that's coming up right at the top of the hour, right here in the Situation Room. In our Health Lead, a consequential ruling today on the medication for abortion drug mifepristone. A federal appeals court imposed restrictions on the use of mifepristone, but it will remain on the market. The Justice Department today, today says it will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to review the decision, and the ruling is paused from taking effect until the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in. Here are the rules that exist as of now. Mifepristone can still be prescribed by a non-physician. You don't need to go to a doctor's office uh, to get the prescription. It can be done via telehealth, and you can obtain it until up until 10 weeks of the pregnancy. This is the most consequential legal battle over abortion since the Supreme Court last summer overturned Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have an invite. I'm back on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. 
If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.